Section 26 of The Sainted Queens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Sainted Queens by Unknown. St. Elizabeth of Hungary, Chapter 8. The Landgrave Henry kept his word and did all in his power to wipe out the memory of his past cruelty. He treated Elizabeth with all the respect and affection due to her, and left her at full liberty to exercise the works of charity in which she delighted. She received about this time the great consolation of a fatherly letter of encouragement from the Supreme Pontiff, Gregory the Seventh, who, as Cardinal Ugolini, had specially commended her to the glorious St. Francis. He assured her now that he took her and her children to his special care, and again commissioned Master Conrad, his representative in Germany, to undertake the care of her soul, and also to be her protector against all her enemies and persecutors. And now Elizabeth felt that she was free to embrace the religious state to which, from the first moment of her widowhood, she had aspired. She was already a child of St. Francis, and she longed to follow his rule in its utmost severity, and to beg her bread from door to door, but her director sternly forbade her to embrace a way of life which he judged to be unfitted for her age and sex. She then besought her brother-in-law to assign her to some place of residence where she might live undisturbed. Henry ceded to her the city of Marburg in Hesse, with all its dependencies and revenues, in full possession for the maintenance of herself and her household, and five hundred marks of silver to defray the expenses of her first establishment there. Elizabeth gratefully thanked her brother for a bounty far beyond her wishes or expectations, and a year having now elapsed since her return to Wartburg, she set off with her spiritual guide to the city which her sanctity was to render so illustrious. To avoid the clamorous homage of the citizens who came in crowds to do homage to their young sovereign, she retired to a village called Verda, a few miles from Marburg, where she chose a deserted cabin as her abode until her residence at Marburg should be ready for her. This was to be a little cottage of mud and wood like the huts of the neighboring peasants, built close to the church of the friar's minor. She wished to make it plain to all that she came not as a wealthy princess to establish herself in her capital, but as a simple and patient widow to serve the Lord in all humility. As soon as her home was prepared for her, she took possession of it with her children and her faithful attendants. And now, as her confessor persisted in his refusal to allow her to embrace the Franciscan rule in all its strictness, or to enroll herself among the daughters of St. Clair, she desired at least to approach the perfection of her life as nearly as obedience permitted. She obtained leave, therefore, to make the three solemn vows of religion as a member of the Third Order of St. Francis. She is thus accounted the first religious and patroness of the nuns of that order, although it was not till a later period that it assumed a strictly monastic character, by the general adoption of enclosure and of the three vows of religion. Notwithstanding her vow of poverty, Master Conrad compelled her to keep in her own hands the administration of the revenues granted her by the regent, which, after paying certain debts of her husband, she was to devote to the relief of the poor. For many days before her profession, Elizabeth was engaged in fervent prayer for the graces needful in her new state. She told her friend Isintrude that she prayed continually for three graces, first, an absolute contempt for all earthly things, next, courage to despise the insults and calumnies of men, and, lastly and chiefly, the diminution of the excessive love which she bore to her children. One day she came to her companions, radiant with the joy which is not of this world, and said, The Lord has heard my prayer, for behold, all the things of this world which I once loved are become dust in my eyes. As to the calumnies of men, the lies of the wicked, and the contempt which I excite, they make me feel proud and happy. My dear little ones, the children of my bosom, whom I loved so much, whom I was wont to embrace so tenderly, even those beloved children are, I take God to witness, no more than strangers to me. To God I offer them, to him I entrust them. May his holy will be done in all things. I love nothing now. I love no creature any longer. I love nothing but my creator. Such was the heroic detachment from earthly ties, by which the saint prepared herself to assume the habit consecrated by the use of St. Francis and St. Clair. 
If I could find a habit, said she, poorer than St. Clair's, I would take it to console myself for not being able to enter her holy order, but I know of none. On Good Friday, when the altars are laid bare in memory of him who was stripped of all things for the love of us, and in the church of the Friars Minor, the most perfect imitators of the poverty of Christ, Elizabeth laid her pure hands upon the naked altar stone, and swore to renounce forever her own will, her friends, kindred, children, and all the pomps and pleasures of this world. While Master Conrad said the Mass, Brother Burchard, the provincial of the Friars Minor in Hesse, cut off her hair, clothed her in a grey tunic, and girded her with the cord, which is the distinctive mark of the Order of St. Francis. She wore this habit till the day of her death, and always went barefoot. Gouda, her maid of honor, took the habit of the third order at the same time with her beloved mistress, and solemnly renewed the vow of chastity which she had made privately in the lifetime of the good landgrave. The dear saint now made her last sacrifice of human affection by sending from her the children to whom she had clung with such intense love. The two elder, whose lot was cast in the world, Herman and Sophia, were sent to the castle of Kreutzberg to remain under sure guardianship until the one should be of age to assume the government of his dominions, the other to be given in marriage to her betrothed, the young Duke of Brabant. The second daughter returned to her aunt, the abbess of Kitzingen, and the little Gertrude, who had been devoted to God before her birth in the parting anguish of her father and mother, was sent to the convent of Aldenburg, a poor but holy house, of which she was elected abbess at twenty-one, after a novitiate marked by every monastic virtue. Elizabeth was now left alone with God to lead the life of poverty and abnegation which she had chosen for herself. As she was forbidden to beg her bread, she resolved to earn it by the labor of her hands. She employed herself in spinning wool, she was not skillful enough to spin flax, and sold the produce of her labor for a poor pittance to the nuns of Aldenburg. When confined to her bed by sickness, she prepared wool for spinning. She saved from the produce of her labor enough to make some poor offerings to the church, the rest supplied her own coarse and scanty nourishment. The whole of her princely revenues were devoted to the poor, to whom she still rendered the same lowly personal services which it had been her delight to lavish upon them when Landgravine of Thuringia. No religious ever excelled her in the practice of poverty. Her coarse habit was pierced over and over again with patches of all shades and colors till its original texture could scarcely be distinguished. She collected these pieces whenever she could, and sewed them on as well as she could, for she was a bad needlewoman. She insisted upon doing all the cooking and all the work of the little household itself, and waited like a menial upon her companions, who remonstrated with her in vain upon a humility so painful to them. "'It is true, dearest lady,' said one of them, "'that you are gaining great merit by your behavior to us, but you forget the danger we run of being puffed up with pride when you cook our dinner for us, and then insist upon our sitting down by your side to eat it with you.' To which Elizabeth answered, "'Well, if you will not sit by my side, you must sit on my knee,' and she took her in her arms and made her sit down accordingly." Her patience and charity were proof against all trials. Never was the slightest expression of discontent forced from her. She often spoke at great length to her companions. The heavenly sweetness and joyousness of her heart overflowed in these intimate conversations, but she would never suffer a vain or light word to be spoken in her presence, or one tinged with anger or impatience. She would interrupt the speaker at once with an authority full of grace and sweetness, saying, "'Where is our Lord, then, all this time?' One of her first cares after her arrival at Marburg was to build a hospital, which she consecrated to St. Francis of Assisi. Pope Gregory the Ninth, who had just canonized the saint, sent her a relic even more precious than the mantle which she had received with so much gratitude a few years before, some drops of blood from the miraculous wound in the side of St. Francis. She placed it in the chapel of her new hospital. There she devoted herself as before to the care of the sick, choosing for the objects of her special tenderness cases of leprosy, or other diseases which rendered the sufferers objects of horror and loathing to less heroic souls. Nature would sometimes rebel, and was then quelled by means which our fastidious delicacy shudders even to read of. Once as she was returning from church, she met a poor beggar whom she brought home with her, and began to wash his hands and feet. A feeling of repugnance overcame her so far that she shuddered at her revolting task. 
With a holy indignation at what she accounted her own immortification, she drank the water which she had been using, saying, O my Lord, thou didst drink vinegar and gall for us on the cross. I am not worthy to drink this for thee. Help me to become better. Elizabeth was no less zealous for the souls of her poor than charitable in her care of their bodies, and when there was need of it, she knew how to use a wholesome severity towards them. A blind man presented himself one day to be received into the hospital. Elizabeth happened to be standing at the door with Master Conrad. She consented willingly to receive him, but insisted that he should first approach the sacrament of penance, which he had long neglected. The blind man began to curse and blaspheme, but Elizabeth reproved him with such force and energy that he was struck with compunction, and kneeling down on the spot made his confession to Master Conrad. The saint did not confine her charitable ministrations to the inmates in the hospital, but visited all the surrounding poor in their own miserable dwellings, and when she met with some objects more than usually wretched and loathsome, she would remove them, not into the hospital but in her own cottage, and devote herself especially to their relief. She thus took home a poor orphan boy, who had been born lame, blind, and paralytic. On this forlorn child she lavished all the cares of the tenderest mother, and when he died she replaced him by a poor girl, so disfigured by leprosy that no one in the hospital dared to approach her, or even look at her from a distance. Elizabeth kept her till Master Conrad forbade her to do so any longer, should she herself be infected, but she soon found another child hardly less miserable, whom she kept with her till her death. Meanwhile, the royal father of this poor infirmarian heard from some Hungarian pilgrims returning from Aix la Chapelle of the state of misery to which his daughter was reduced. He was distressed even to tears by the tale, and immediately sent the Count of Manfi, with a numerous suite, to ask for an account of the regent, Henry, of the strange position of his daughter. "'My sister,' replied the young prince, "'is mad, as everybody knows. You can go and see her and judge for yourself.' He then gave the Hungarians an account of the extravagancies she was in the habit of committing, and how she lived entirely with lepers and beggars and such sort of people. He shewed them that her poverty was entirely voluntary, he having guaranteed to her all, and much more than she desired. The Count, much amazed, sent off for Marburg, and upon his arrival he asked the master of the inn where he stopped, what he knew of the Lady Elizabeth, and why she led so strange a life away from her family and friends. "'She is a very pious and virtuous lady,' replied the host. "'She is as rich as any one can desire to be, "'for this city, with all its dependent territory, "'which is not small, belongs to her in absolute possession. "'And if she had been willing, "'many a powerful prince would have been glad to marry her. "'But out of her great humility she lives thus miserably. "'She will not inhabit any of her houses in this city, "'but has built herself a little hut "'close to the hospital which she has founded, "'for she despises all the good things of this world. "'God has conferred a great grace upon us "'in sending us this pious lady.' For all those who have anything to do with her find great benefit to their souls. She never rests from her works of charity. She is most chaste, most sweet, most merciful, but above all more humble than can be believed. The Count begged the innkeeper to show him the way to Elizabeth's dwelling. Madam, said the good man, here are some friends of yours come to see you who wish to speak with you. When the ambassador entered the hut and saw the daughter of his king spinning wool with her distaff in her hand, he was moved to tears, and crossing himself, he exclaimed, Was ever king's daughter before found spinning wool? Then sitting down beside her, he told her that the king, her father, had sent him to fetch her home to her own country, where he would cherish and honor her as his dearly beloved child, but Elizabeth turned a deaf ear to all his entreaties. "'For what do you take me?' said she. "'I am but a poor sinful woman who has never served God as I ought to have done.' "'But who has reduced you to this state of misery?' inquired the Count. "'No one,' replied she, "'unless it be the son of my heavenly father, who, being infinitely rich, has taught me by his example to despise riches and to prize poverty above all the kingdoms of this world.' And then she told him the story of her life since her widowhood and her intentions for the future, and assured him that she had nothing to complain of, that she wanted nothing, and was perfectly happy. The ambassador still urged her father's wishes, beseeching her to return and share his kingdom and inheritance. "'I trust well,' said she, "'that I already possess my father's inheritance, that is, the everlasting mercy of our dear Lord Jesus Christ.' 
When the count urged her not to do her father the wrong of leading a life so unworthy of her birth, the saint made answer, Tell my lord and father that I am happier in this contemptible life than he can be in all his royal pomp, and that, far from grieving on my account, he ought rather to rejoice that he has a child in the service of the great king of heaven and earth. I have but one favor to ask of him, that he will pray and get others to pray for me, and I will pray for him as long as I live. The count left her in deep sorrow, but she returned to her distaff, happy to be able to realize beforehand those sublime words which the church puts into the mouths of those who, like her, have left all things for Christ. I have despised the kingdoms of this world and all the pomp thereof, for the love of my Lord Jesus Christ. End of chapter 8 of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. End of section 26. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.